Welcome to Fax Machine. Today's theme is New York, New York, which also happens to be where I, Emily Costa, am currently sat with my co-hosts Rob Frawley. Hey there. And Noah Guyberson. Hello. We're so excited to share with you guys the juiciest Big Apple-related facts that we've managed to unearth in this here concrete jungle where, as was well established in a 2009 Billboard Hot 100 five-week chart-topping hit, dreams are made of. <laughs> In keeping with our usual routine, the three of us will each present a fact this week pertaining to the simultaneously awe-inspiring and deeply horrifying pizza rat-infested urban swamp we call home, <laughs> and then conclude with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. But first, I'd like to take a New York minute to plug our social media accounts. Feel free to check us out over on Fax Machine Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and Fax Machine Podcast on Facebook, and should I should I drop a little hint as to what we have cooking? We got big news. We big do news. have some pretty big news. Uh, it's still coalescing, but keep an eye out for a live it's event. It's happening. It's happening. happening. happening? Okay. We're definitely happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's not coalescing. <laughs> it's congealed. <laughs> <laughs> but it's well. way better than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> We're setting the bar nice and low for you guys. But yeah, any New York listeners, keep an eye out for uh, some live show happenings. Or even New Jersey, Connecticut, April. Northern Pennsylvania. I mean, California. They have planes. They have planes are good, yeah. <laughs> I'm still not sure how they stay up. <laughs> also, not clear if we actually got this across. We are doing a live show. Whoa! The Upper West Side. There. Yes. <laughs> the very Upper West Side of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Live podcast interactive experience. Uh, during Taste of Science, the Taste of Science Festival. Details are forthcoming. We will present them all to you, so look out for that. Get excited. Get live. <laughs> if we know we will. <laughs> Woo! <Yeah. laughs> All right. All right. And with that, <laughs> Rob, what have you got for us this week? So this week I learned that at one point on a quarter mile stretch of New York City's 4th Avenue, there were 38 independent booksellers. Today, there remains just one bookshop in that space. You may have heard of it. The Strand. So this is a... R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> Not to The Strand. The Strand is too <laughs> loud and kicky. scary say, like that. Let me just say... That I think probably the greatest moment in our podcast history was when we mentioned the strand in an Instagram post, and then they messaged us on Instagram a heart. So I couldn't believe it. Remember, I was <laughs> I was hosting trivia at the time and like noticeably freaked out. I don't yeah. know if you caught. Yeah, <laughs> it was very very exciting. Very and, exciting. Uh, we're gonna see what we can do to get another heart uh, from the strand in this episode. <laughs> All right, but this this is a pretty cool fact. It goes back. Uh, over 100 years in, in the history of New York City. And so historic New York is hot right now. Everyone's posting, you know, we got 10-year challenge on social media. But New York City's upped it. They've got like 100-year challenge photos out there. Like New York in the 19-teens, New York now. This book row is what it was called. This strip of 4th Avenue that is filled with bookstores. Um, this is like in an era before Times Square had been built by the Times. Like we're thinking about like 1890. 
Um, and one adventurous bookseller moves in and decides to open his first bookshop in Book Row. Um, quick story about George D. Smith. Um, he started a bookstore at the address of 830 Broadway in 1890, and it, it became this area, like it became the nucleus of this literary downtown area uh, that was the centerpiece of Book Row. This area was a haven for book lovers. Many famous authors like Jack Kerouac and Robert Frost came in uh, to one shop called Books and Things. Um, it's where they found inspiration for their literature. Um, really big, big players in the New York City literary scene. And it grew for years and years. And so in the 30s and 40s, it was a place where book lovers went to get books from one of 38 secondhand bookshops. Secondhand book selling was this entire industry. Um, and amazingly, by the 60s, it was almost completely gone. Um, the majority of the places had been displaced by high rents. A lot of them moved to other locations in the city. And like, really, this is something that still plagues bookshops to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, the Strand is really the only original bookstore from that uh, time period that is left there. It has taken on a very different form. It has a very kind of big bookstore feel now. It doesn't feel like a secondhand bookstore. I would say it's really not. Oh, their basement is, though. Yeah. They, they maintain yeah. that kind of original fiber of who they are at the Strand. But they've done so also by kind of just introducing more traditional book selling. Right. Um, and that market even, um, like big chain stores like Barnes & Nobles and Borders, are being displaced by web book selling, ebooks, Amazon. Um, so it's really interesting how the book market has changed from 1890, when it started in this place, to today, when it's completely different. And something I think is really funny about Amazon and its effect on, like, the bookstore industry is, like, Amazon destroyed companies like Borders and like Barnes and Noble as well. Like mm-hmm. these like large bookstores. But the the most brutal thing Amazon has done is as the final like Borders and Barnes and Noble like stores closed down, Amazon is buying them, the physical plant of those stores, and turning them into Amazon bookstores. No. Wow. Yeah. Like, that is, like, the final master stroke of just the utter domination of the bookselling industry (laughs) is to completely disrupt the physical bookselling industry, completely make them obsolete in terms of, like, the new generations of people in, like, e-book commerce, and then to just go back in the smoking, charred remains of their industry and build the exact same store (laughs) on the exact same plot of land. Just fly over a drone that sticks, like, a flag in the ground with the Amazon logo. I guess what's interesting about second hand book selling is is the fact that it's not this retail kind of industry pushing new books and pushing like the interesting big titles um, being able to charge kind of retail prices uh, someone who works at the strand actually marvin mondlin uh, and another author roy meter they wrote a book called book row an anecdotal and pictorial history of the antiquarian book trade um, which is jam-packed with interesting stories about what happened there but one of the quotes from that book is from a guy named guido bruno uh, in 1922, he was a, a, a big proponent of, of secondhand bookselling, and he said, no matter how large and complete the stock of a secondhand book dealer may be, his neighbor's collection will be quite different. The clients of secondhand bookshops, quote, like to browse. And it's, yeah. it's not even about like, oh, I want to get the new book. It's I want to see what's out there. Yeah. And yeah. you can't do that on Amazon. You can kind of do it at stores like Borders, but you don't really get to see the gems that you find in secondhand bookstores. And I think that's the charm. Well, sure. And especially um, with secondhand books, you picture, too, they all had previous owners, people who read them and traveled mm-hmm. with them. And there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of kind of like human... Oh, the only word I can think of right now is residue, and that sounds really <laughs> gross. <laughs> I think maybe yeah, I mean. resonance. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, that's that's a lot nicer. <laughs> Let's go with that. Well, if this is a New York episode, and we'd be remiss if we didn't at some point mention human residue. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So I, I also read a couple articles, one um, uh, in the New York Times from 1981, I guess, you know, when this, when the, maybe the last few that were non-strand bookstores were, like, finally being snuffed out. As you said, they sort of mostly closed in the 60s. But uh, this one guy who had owned a, a store in this stretch uh, on Book Row, um, whose name was, is very pleasingly, Jack Biblo. Wow. Yeah, isn't that great? Talk For a bookstore. Exactly. Yeah. Nominative determinism. <laughs> um, and he, he recounts that when, when he started, right down the street, there would be a bookstore owned by like an old Russian revolutionary who kept in the middle of a bookstore, okay, full, filled with paper. He had a wood-burning stove in the middle, and if he liked you, he would give you a cup of tea just on site. And if he didn't like you, he threw you out. Um, and if you if he told you a price and you said oh, I don't know, you like said you'd think about it, he'd double the price. Um, but then, <laughs> He's the original soup Nazi. <laughs> yeah. I wonder, like, because it, it's, it's headlines every time that a bookstore closes in New York City. Um, so even just this year, there have been a couple big announcements of bookstores closing. Um, um, there's the McNally Jackson bookstore, uh, mm. which is down on Prince Street. It's been open for there for 14 years. They just announced they're going to close. People are very upset about it. Um, the West Ender bookstore uh, on the Upper West Side announced that it was closing. People got really upset. Um, what, what actually amazingly happened was they, they crowdsourced $50,000 basically overnight. Wow. Yeah, and so they said, and I mean they're being very realistic. They said we're going to stay open another year. We're like moved and like heart, like our hearts are warmed by what everyone did. But they saw an uptick in business and an increase in just random donations. Right, um, and it was because of people who didn't go there to buy books, but went there to check in, browse, talk to the owners, didn't want to see it go. But you wonder if that guy was like trying to retire, and now he's like, <laughs> he's like oh, oh, no, God, I gotta uh, stay open for uh, years again. I had it out. Uh. <laughs> well, there, there's another um, sort of a, another good story um, on the topic of book, uh, bookstore closures this year is uh, the Drama Bookshop, which is not on in this yeah. book row area. It's but it's a uh, it's over a hundred years old um, in the, like the theater district, and they sell like uh, like scripts for for plays, sheet music, other sort of theater related material. Um, and they were going out of business, and actually Lin-Manuel Miranda bought it with That's a couple so of his cool. friends. Um, and so they're going to keep it open because of that, which is pretty cool. So I was actually walking by there the other day, and I saw the storefront. And it, it's closed right now because they're moving locations. He, he preserved right. it to move somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went to take a picture of the storefront to actually put on this Instagram. Um, there's, I couldn't do that because there was a girl on her phone, and she wouldn't move, even though I was <laughs> asking her to do it. But while I was there trying to take this picture, two people stopped me and said, it's closed? I thought Lin-Manuel Miranda bought it. And I had to explain to them, yes, but it's moving to a new location. And they're, and like, they're like, oh, thank you. Do you know Lin? <laughs> Tell them like, I said hi. Yes. <laughs> there is this kind of idea of this was a beautiful, like wonderful industry, and everyone misses it. And like you said, rose-colored glasses, or rose-tinted glasses that really... Um, we project onto it, but there is a dark, dark <laughs> underbelly. The dark, seedy underbelly to of the book. Secondhand book life. <laughs> In another book that was um, published that I also did not have the chance to read, but I highly recommend to our listeners. Um, 
This is a book called Thieves of Book Row, New York's Most Notorious Rare Book Ring and the Man Who Stopped It. Wow. And so this is a book that I actually didn't get to the end and I don't know how it stopped. Uh, Ran out of time this week. Sorry, guys. But I did come across a news article describing it in the heat of book ring days. Um, So in the Sunday Star, a Washington, D.C. newspaper from 1932, I found a full account of how book scouts would go around New York City collecting rare books to be sold in secondhand bookshops. Um, and so they were basically like part of this book mafia. And the, the bookstore owners were like the bosses who would send them out on jobs. Wow. And so it describes like one individual who went into Columbia's libraries um, to look into the stacks. And they have a fantastic stack. Like the Columbia libraries are gigantic, like eight stories of just nonstop books. Um, we get it, Rob. You went to Columbia. Yeah. Did I mention how nice the Columbia <laughs> Library is? <laughs> but, but these guys would go in there and they would just be like, oh, I'm just going to read some books in the stacks. And they would stuff like eight books in their coats, like all like rare collector books that they were sent specifically wow. to get. And they would bring wow. it back to the bosses and the boss would be like, oh, you missed this volume. You got to go back for this volume. <laughs> and it's just this unbelievable like... There are thousands and thousands of dollars worth of like one of a kind manuscripts that they were stealing from university libraries to be sold like down on Fourth Avenue, like to try to get the Russian guy out of business. Oh man! Wow. And it's just incredible. And a lot of like the people wouldn't be um, charged because they'd be like, "Oh, I'm sorry, it was a library book. I took it by accident." And like <laughs> forgot to return it. Just kept saying that. Um, <laughs> so speaking of the seedy underbelly of uh of libraries and bookstores so i've come across this uh purported fact that old books people really like the smell because there's like basically fungal spores in it Mm -hmm. that might have hallucinogenic properties and i've I've heard that on some other podcasts i've like read some articles about it and i was really psyched to like learn more about it for for this episode because i knew you were doing this book thing uh, and so I looked into it, and it's absolutely just not true at all. And it entirely comes down to a 1995 Lancet article that was written by um, an eminent mycologist and all-around fun guy. Yes. <laughs> uh, Dr. Dr. R.J. Hay uh, in the U.K., um, in which he proposes the idea just as an entertaining, like, hypothetical, and questions whether, quote, the source of inspiration for many great literary figures may have been nothing more than a quick sniff of the bouquet of moldy books. But it was never, it was never meant to be, like, something they had actually discovered. What he was actually writing about was, like, the fungi that do actually live in libraries and cause disease. Um, so he actually wrote, Fungi are, quote, unlikely to be inhibited from crossing the thresholds of the world's libraries by the proprietorial glower of the librarian. To the gourmet fungus, as to the bibliophile, a well-stocked library is a feast of incomparable variety and flavor. And so they were just basically talking about there are actually a lot of, like, funguses that can have, like, detrimental effects on your your immune system, on your respiratory Mm -hmm. system, stuff like that. Um, But then proposing just kind of as like an interesting hypothetical like there are fungi that have uh like hallucinogenic spores um but not actually specifically citing any Mm, um and so every single time that has been mentioned it references this article because the lancet is like an eminent medical medical journal journal. and they know basically as far as they read Mm -hmm. was there was an article where somebody mentioned this and they're like lancet sounds legit (laughs) but it's not actually true so you can't get high from huffing books (laughs) (laughs) oh 
So I have a fact about a non-seedy underbelly of a literary institution. Oh, seedless underbelly. (laughs) Seedless. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I basically stumbled upon this fact, um, kind of jumping off of The Strand, uh, which we talked about a little bit earlier, um, and their identity as 18 miles of books, which actually now their wares put them closer to 23 miles of books. Um, But I looked into other uh, sites of impressive New York City literary feats. Um, And one of those, as you might imagine, is the New York Public Library. So a few uh, fun facts to start. The NYPL is actually the second largest public library in the U.S. behind the Library of Congress and the third largest in the world. Wow which is kind of insane to me. Um, And given that, you might imagine that they have some pretty creative mechanisms in place for housing and organizing their immense catalog and satisfying the literary cravings of an omnivorous readership. So I first stumbled upon this fact, actually, um, in fact, hunting for our last episode of Fax Machine, wherein I took out a book from the Milstein Research Stacks at the NYPL. So you can place a request for books in that uh, collection online or in person, which I did um, at the service desk in the Rose Main Reading Room. And I went there, you know, talked to a clerk at the desk, gave her a little slip of the book. And then 45 minutes later, as if by magic, my book appeared on a little red train car oh. that was on a track that just kind of came out what? from the floor. Are you <laughs> serious? Part- yeah. Oh, wow. Was it like, was wait, like, was it like a strange. little, was it, was it like a little train or was it like a little so conveyor it's like, belt? It's like a little cart, I would say. Okay. It's kind of a weird comparison, but have you been to Popeye's? <laughs> like the restaurant Popeye's? No. Oh, darn it. Okay. Or, um, okay, fine. Like a Dunkin' Donuts munchkin box. This is like... So okay. kind of, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's oh, kind yeah. of like that shape. Like oh, it's oh. Like a little bit taller than that. Okay. And it has four wheels on the bottom. And it's red and it has the NYPL Lion logo on it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was really cute. Do you get cute. to keep the box? No. Oh. Was it, it self-powered? To... It just came up on the rails? Uh, I think it's... I think they're moving rails, actually. Okay. I misspoke. So that little red train car uh, was actually part of a new $2.6 million book conveyor system that was installed in 2016, and it shuttles books back and forth from the Milstein stacks, which itself is housed in a 55,600-square-foot two-story bunker underneath (laughs) Bryant Park that was built to house 1.5 million books. Wow. Yeah, so... Underbelly, mm. but not seedy. <laughs> <laughs> also, book conveyor sounds like the name of the Cliff Notes app. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> nice. Boom. <laughs> so yeah, I thought that was pretty staggering. But the rail line itself is over 950 feet long and runs 24 of those little train cars that zip along its twists and turns at 75 feet per minute and can even climb vertically. Wow. Like a gear and pulley system. That's cool. Yeah. Um, the space is also temperature and humidity controlled, so don't have to worry about hallucinogenic or non-hallucinogenic mushrooms <laughs> growing there, um, which is cool in that it makes this vast collection available to today's New Yorkers, um, but also preserve them for generations to come. And one other interesting thing that I found about the Milstein stacks is that the books are actually sorted by their size rather than their subject. Oh, cool. So they're each barcoded really intensely so they don't get mixed around. But they basically like reorganized it that way a few years ago and found that it gained them 40% more space. Wow. wow. Just by That's so awesome. That. Yeah. They have like every single book measured precisely. So it's like if you're like, I would like to see the book about that weird detective from our last episode. It's just like, <laughs> well, that is the book that is exactly... 
11 centimeters <laughs> do you, high. Do you know its dimensions? Because mm. yeah. there was a lot of time. <laughs> and then, well, they just have that in, like, the system. And then the system just goes down. It's like... And then, like, finds the first book that is exactly that height. <laughs> <laughs> so, from what I saw, they actually have this sort of rubric that the, um, the clerks use to kind of sort the books, even as they're loading them back into the train carts. And it's just purely by, like... There's sort of like tiers of like size and width that they're then sorted into. And I think the idea is to then kind of um, minimize the height and depth of the shelving. So that mm, way you can pack totally. things in more tightly. I'm um, imagining just this like yeah, size exclusion cool. for books. Just like pour all your books in and like the little ones fall through first and they go on a shelf. And we've now alienated all of our non-scientist <laughs> listeners. <laughs> all right, Noah, what have you got for us? This week I learned, at the turn of the 20th century, a third of cars in New York City were electric and all cabs were. So most people, I feel like these days, think of electric cars as like this brand new invention, you know, basically invented to save the world from climate change and CO2 emissions and stuff. Um, Pretty sure Al Gore invented them, right? Yeah, Al Gore (laughs) invented them right after the internet. Um, You know, so people get really excited about, like, Teslas and, like, you know, the whatever other cars are electric. Doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are some. Um, but people think of this as, like, a technology which has only become possible, like, just recently because of some scientific advances and saving the world, etc. But, in fact, the electric car was actually first invented either in 1828 by a Hungarian priest or in 1834 by either a Vermont blacksmith or a Dutch professor, depending on who you ask. A Hungarian priest? <laughs> yes, that is Anjos Jedlik, um, okay. who, who has has a claim. And then also both in 1934, uh, Vermont blacksmith Thomas Davenport or Dutch professor, uh, uh, Professor Sebrandus Stretting. <laughs> so there, all these people have uh, some claim on creating the first electric automobile. Um, so electric cars basically just became progressively more and more sophisticated uh, throughout the 19th century, notably with the invention of the lead-acid rechargeable battery in 1859 by French scientist Gaston Planté that enabled practical onboard storage of electricity, as well as the stranglehold of electric vehicles on the land speed record until 1902, when the electric car record of 65.79 miles per hour was bested by a steam-powered vehicle at 75.06 miles an hour. And just in case you guys were wondering, the fastest electric land speed record as of this recording was set at 341.4 miles an hour by the Buckeye Bullet, which was created by students from Ohio State University. And that record was set in 2016. Um, and just in case you're interested further, uh, the fastest overall land speed record is about 763 miles per hour, which was set uh, in the Thrust SSC vehicle, which is powered by two jet engines strapped to a coffin. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just to make things easier. <laughs> no, just kidding. Saves our big time. <laughs> but um, anyway, so bringing things back to New York, at the end of the 19th century, about 40% of cars were powered by electricity, actually, compared with about 20% that were powered by gasoline, with the remaining 40% were actually steam-powered. So due to their popularity at the onset of the automobile age, electric cars also achieved some non-land speed record firsts. In 1899, Jacob German, who was driving an electric taxi cab, received the very first speeding ticket in the United States. 
And also, that same year, a guy named Henry Bliss became the first victim of an automotive accident in the United States when he was hit by an electric taxi cab as he was helping a friend from a streetcar. So, all right, I can't, I can't resist. I looked further into Henry Bliss. Um, and basically, the Wikipedia article on the incident uh, of his death is pretty scant. It gives some details about the actual crash, what became of the taxi driver. Um, but then, if you scroll down further, and I might say, too, this story is very representative of how... I think finding stories for this podcast tends to go. <laughs> Under the family section of the article, uh, I stumbled upon a gem. So Bliss's stepdaughter, Mary Alice Altamont Livingston, who assumed the surname Fleming, was tried for the murder of her mother, Bliss's ex-wife, Evelina Bliss, by means of poisoned clam chowder. What? So that was just a single sentence in that article, and naturally I frantically looked into it further because how can you not... <laughs> Um, and basically learned a lot about this case, and it's just, it's a story worth telling, in my opinion. Um, so this information was derived from an archival 1953 New Yorker piece titled The Great Chowder Murder. (laughs) It's a Disney movie that never made it. (laughs) Um, so to give some context, uh, so Mary Fleming was Bliss's daughter from his first marriage to Evelina. And she also was, to her family's dismay, a bit unusual for her time, um, and that she was somewhat of an amorous sort. So uh, over the course of her youth, she had relationships with three men, none of whom she married, though she did sue at least two of them for not marrying her. <laughs> and one point that I also feel is relevant to <laughs> <What>? mention. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, so this was a thing back then um, where you could sue someone for breach of promise, or basically if you were in a relationship with them long enough and it seemed like they were going to marry you, you could then say, they said they were going to marry me. I'm going to sue you and you have to pay me some sort of alimony despite oh. the fact that you never actually married me. Um, so she tried to do that twice. And I also think it's relevant to mention that of the two ex-bows whom she sued, uh, one died supposedly of natural causes and the other, and this is taken from the article that I mentioned earlier, vanished. <laughs> and that is all that is said about him. Oh, that's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that just kind of, you know, sets the stage for what's to come, in my opinion. So at the time of the great Chowder murder, um, or Chowdicide, which I think is just a great well, a better be, title be for if it. you murdered the Chowder. That's true. Like right now, I'm really hungry. If you put some Chowder in front of me. There's going to be an chowder odd chowder side here. <laughs> Fair enough. At the time of her crime, uh, she was in dire financial straits, uh, having three children from these various suitors and a fourth on the way. And also her current beau was um, apparently uh, running a failing coffin making business. She's really it's double just, dipping here. Yeah, she really <laughs> the is. trick is to put jet engines on either side of the coffin. There we go. Um so to try and remedy her financial issues, she attempted to get a portion of her late father's estate, um, but that inheritance was tied up by her mother, Evelina Bliss. So uh, she basically sought after that money, and also perhaps to drum up more business for her woefully inept coffin-making boyfriend, two birds, one stone, perhaps. Um, one afternoon, she sent her daughter and her daughter's friend to visit good old Grandma Bliss with a spread of goodies that included clam chowder laced with arsenic and antimony. Just the way Grandma liked it. <laughs> With a little chowder powder. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> so, Wait, so does that mean that the children knew they were killing their grandmother? Or, like, why didn't they eat the chowder? I didn't think about oh. that. 
So I think the mother instructed the daughter not to eat the chowder, but then I'll go into this a little more later, but the, like, Mary's lawyer also cited that as well. Like, the daughter probably disobeyed and ate the chowder, and she was fine, so clearly she couldn't have committed murder, but that was a thing. But also, I didn't think about this poor granddaughter was an accessory to the murder of her grandmother. (laughs) Yeah, that's That's, messed up. That's dark. Anyways, so at the funeral, (laughs) uh, Mary's stepfather, the aforementioned Mr. Henry Bliss, who had later become the first victim of motor vehicular manslaughter in U.S. history, just as a reminder of how the hell we got to where we are right now. (laughs) So he accused her of mollusk-mediated matricide (laughs) and had her carried off by the police. And then what followed was, at the time, an exceptionally sensational murder trial. So to give you a taste of how that went, uh, Mary's lawyer, determined to establish her innocence, blamed her mother's death on everything from suicide to heart failure to negligence by her doctor uh, to an infectious organism that he might have made up on the spot. It was called pitomains. (laughs) What? Um, is that like just, P period domains? So or? the spelling from the article is P-E-E dash T-O-E dash mains, like the state of Maine. Sure. Wow. Which he described as uh, a recent scourge in New York City restaurants uh, that multiplied with staggering efficiency, specifically in clam chowder. So basically the guy was pulling random defenses and excuses out of thin air. Oh, um, and this highly dramatic and at times clearly farcical trial went on for five weeks until the jur- jury finally declared her innocent. And she actually got her inheritance as well. So she really wow. made out like a bandit. Was he in there with like an oven mitt? And he was like, if the oven mitt don't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> for chowder like a ladle <laughs> or did she eat, did she plead the fifth and clam up yes amazing yeah so if you don't remember this fact is about electric cars in new york city um, so i'm gonna pivot back to that um so i was trying to tell you about how the electric car gained popularity in new york um, it ran over somebody, got a speeding ticket. Emily told us a lot about something else. <laughs> but so and now just, we're here. <laughs> yeah, so to give you some context about this time though, the at the time the predominant means of getting around in New York City had been horse-drawn carriages. So electric cars began to catch on because unlike gasoline-powered cars, they're quieter, easier to start, and unlike horses, electric cars were less likely to shit on you or to <laughs> Up and die in the middle of the road, for example. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's fair. But just just so you know, in the year 1880 alone, 15,000 dead horses were removed from New York City streets, which Mm. is really sad. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why New York City needed the electric car. In addition to all these horses that were dying, by 1908, 20,000 New Yorkers died each year from, quote, maladies that fly in the dust created mainly by horse manure. So it was a real, like, epidemiological problem is having all these horses in the city. That's incredible. Mm, yeah. That's really cool. And so the, the hope was that automobiles would save this, but then you had the issue with gasoline-powered cars. They smelled really bad and were really loud. Uh, and electric cars, basically, that they had sort of a limited radius that they could go before they needed to be recharged, which is a process that normally took, like, eight hours. And early batteries yeah. were really expensive, right? Yeah. Like, to make them out of zinc or, like, whatever your, your um, like, your central metals would be. Right. 
Um, but I mean, it, for as like a as like a car for somebody who lived in the city, it wasn't that big a deal. So so that was the backdrop for the first ever taxi cab company in New York, actually, which was the Electric Carriage and Wagon Company, which uh, by 1899 had up to 100 taxi cabs running. However, tragically, in 1907, a fire destroyed 300 of the company's vehicles, and horse-drawn cabs once again became the primary means of transportation in New York, to the collective joy of horses and pedestrians alike. So, however, that very same year, Harry and Allen imported 65 gasoline-powered cars from France and began the New York Taxi Cab Company, and the electric cab, as well as the electric car, began to fall out of favor. Um, so, as I mentioned briefly before, electric vehicles did have a number of advantages over their late 1800s, early 1900s competitors. For example, they did not have the excessive vibration, terrible odor, and deafening noise that gasoline-powered cars did. They also didn't require gear changes. And another thing that gasoline-powered cars required was a hand crank that you had to turn in order to start the engine. Mm. It was kind of a difficult process. So some of these reasons made them generally more easy to use. And as a result, electric cars were often marketed as being more accessible for women specifically. So uh, a writer, C.H. Cloudy, who was both the automotive columnist for the magazine Woman's Home Companion, and if you hadn't already guessed, a man, <laughs> wrote in 1907, What a delight to have a machine which she can run herself, with no loss of dignity, for making calls, for shopping, for a pleasurable ride, <laughs> for the paying back of some small social debt. <laughs> I mean, I was really uncomfortable reading all these things people were saying. But this is actually comes from a really interesting article that I encourage you guys to look up. And it was, uh, the title of that article is Femininity and the Electric Car by Professor of History at the University of New Mexico, Virginia Scharf, who goes into basically the whole culture surrounding this uh, idea that the electric car was like a woman's vehicle. However, at the time, this association resulted in the stigmatization of electric cars, with some companies going so far as to affix dummy radiators to the front in order to disguise the car's propulsion system. <laughs> so basically, wow. you, you had electric car companies that were so afraid men would be ashamed to be seen driving them that they would put basically like a sticker over the front of the car that made it look like <laughs> there was like a gasoline-powered engine in front of it, um, which is like... Toxic masculinity, toxic fumes. Just toxic everything. <laughs> All right, so we've arrived at my fact. So this week I learned that there was once a monument in Brooklyn Bridge Park, just across the East River from New York City, commemorating the tragic Brooklyn Bridge elephant stampede of 1929. Now. Have you guys ever heard about this incident of a pachydermal parade gone terribly awry? Seem to have forgotten this one, yeah. Yeah. Well, me neither. And there's good reason for that. It never actually happened. Oh. <laughs> Sneaky. Sneaky. Yeah. See that? Well, yeah. So I first happened upon this fact uh, through the website Atlas Obscura, which I have to say is a wonderful place that I highly recommend visiting. Um, it's basically this near encyclopedic repository of all the most fascinating and unusual and like 
mysterious, concealed, mystical, disturbing, astounding <laughs> places all over the world. Um, and the book of the same name. You can or, find all those things in New York. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them are in New York. Um, and their book of the same name is also really awesome. I actually had the good fortune of winning it at a Yankee Swap this past year and honestly white knuckle clutched the entire thing <laughs> the entire time to deter anyone from stealing it from me. And you know what? It worked. Anyways, my fact uh, centers around the public art produced by native New York sculptor Joseph Reginella. So referred to by the New York Times as the Banksy of Monuments, his day job consists mostly of set work for TV shows or department store window displays, while his night job is at least partly spent producing intricate memorials to made-up historical catastrophes. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so earlier I mentioned the monument in Brooklyn Bridge Park, which depicts three circus elephants, uh, tassel-covered headdresses and all, bursting through the twin arches of the iconic bridge and crushing hapless newsies, flappers, and other assorted old-timey New Yorkers underfoot. But Reginella's dedication to historical inaccuracy doesn't stop there. The monument's accompanying website, uh, bbelephantstampede.com, is a trove of resources and lore, replete with fake primary sources documenting the event, mockumentaries featuring non-existent eyewitness accounts, and a map for a walking tour that features stops such as Castle Clinton, which is actually a real fort in Battery Park, um, where one of the elephants, named Breezy, was, according to legend, shot down by low-level mobsters Vinny the Poacher Rizzo, Tony <laughs> Big Game Nucci, and Johnny Safari Esposito. <laughs> <laughs> um, to give you an even better taste of how informative and detailed, uh, but also generally kooky, these pseudo-historical accounts are, uh, here's an example excerpt uh, from one on the website. So forewarning, it gets a bit graphic, but to be honest, it's no more disturbing than the movie Dumbo, which, if you guys have rewatched that since you were children, just don't. Don't do it. <laughs> you, you don't want to know. Since the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge in May of 1883, elephants have crossed into Lower Manhattan. It was a hallowed and wholesome tradition, started by world-famous showman P.T. Barnum. That is, until the laughter and cheers of yesteryear were supplanted with screams of horror and the sounds of bones crunching under elephant foot. <laughs> <laughs> October 29th, 1929, to some, is known as Black Friday, the day of the great stock market crash. To others, it is known as the Brooklyn Bridge Elephant Stampede, one of the most horrific land mammal tragedies in our nation's history. And if you were, as I was, concerned about the fate of elephants in this tale, um, I will follow up to say that two of them did lose their lives in the brouhaha, including Breezy, who I mentioned before, but the third, named Jumbo, was last seen running to freedom through the Holland Tunnel. So apart from the monument to the elephant stampede, over the years Reginella has debuted two other memorials of a similar ilk uh, just across the river in Battery Park. Uh, one of them, featuring a Cthulhu-esque creature dragging a passenger ferry into the murky depths of the Hudson River, was dedicated to the Staten Island Ferry Octopus Disaster of 1963. And the other project, and the most recent one, depicts a sailor shielding his eyes from an invisible bright light while kneeling over the collapsed figure of a stereotypical movie alien. And this, of course, <laughs> of course, memorializes the NYC UFO tugboat abduction of 1977, which was exactly what it sounds like. So as with the elephant stampede, these monuments also come with a suite of complimentary hoaxes, including a museum uh, for which Reginella occasionally hands out brochures for to people in person yeah. <laughs> that houses evidence and photoshopped crime scene photos of the octopus disaster, and also a harbor mystery boat cruise that advertises reenactment excursions and meet and greets with the mascot, Albert the Alien. So one of the other things that he did in order to 
make it more difficult for people to try to debunk these things, at least on the first Google, was to put the date of their supposed occurrence on the same day as their really famous events. So, for example, the 1929 Brooklyn Bridge elephant stampede was the same day as the great stock market crash that started uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. the Great Depression. <laughs> yep. uh, this, the 1963 Staten Island Ferry octopus disaster was when JFK got assassinated. <laughs> um, and then finally, the 1977... Uh, like UFO tugboat whatever was uh, at the same time of, there was like a really horrible blackout in 1977. Mm-hmm. He actually <laughs> even goes to some deeper levels too of kind of incorporating names of real people and places and elements to sort of lend a little bit of credence to these stories. Um, one of my favorite examples that I encountered was for the Elephant Stampede Memorial. Um, so that walking tour that I referenced earlier actually includes a stop at the whole riddled exterior of 23 Wall Street, which got its holes historically um, from an explosion perpetrated by anarchists in the 1920s. Um, but it's explained on the walking tour as bullets that were shot at one of the rogue uh-huh. elephants. So it's, the, yeah, the level of detail and dedication to crafting these stories is pretty spectacular yeah. <laughs> I have to say. so one other little detail about one of his stories um and it's the 1963 staten island ferry octopus disaster which as you mentioned is like a i think it's like a bronze statue uh where there's like a the mm-hmm. like staten island ferries being like eaten by like a, this giant octopus from the depths but it, so apparently that was inspired by an, an excerpt from a selman rushdie novel mm-hmm. and so i went to that novel and I found at least the reference that I, I believe it's it's based on. Okay. And it's um, at the beginning of the War of the Worlds, Raim took to the water, and one lightless afternoon he arose as a giant sea monster from the winter harbor and swallowed the Staten Island Ferry. Oh, there we go. A tide of horror spread across the city. <laughs> <laughs> nice. A tide so that's, of horror. That's like the line <laughs> that it's all from. Tide of horror. So in case it isn't already evident, I think Joseph Reginella and his public art are really freaking cool. Um, It's clear that he has a passion for spinning tall tales, and he shares them in a way that evokes not only confusion at their sheer absurdity, but also delight. And while happening upon things that take you by surprise isn't uncommon in New York City, I think it's safe to say that they're rarely received with delight. (laughs) The dedication that goes into making and erecting these monuments is also pretty impressive. So if you pull up images, but don't do that now, just don't stop the podcast, keep listening, we'll be on our Instagram, (laughs) just stay with us. I think you can do both on a podcast. I guess. That's true. It's not a visual It's cold outside, and if you're commuting, keep your hands in your pockets. Yes, this is a public safety issue. (laughs) (laughs) But if you look at the pictures, uh, you can easily see how meticulously these monuments are made. Um, They look old and weathered, and like they're actually composed of bronze and granite and real monument materials, but they're actually made from styrofoam and plywood. And I should mention, too, they aren't permanent installations. Um, In interviews, Joe Reginella has described how he'll wake up early, lug a sculpture onto the Staten Island Ferry, despite the risk of octopus attack, (laughs) and prop it up in its designated location, keeping an eye on bewildered tourists that stumble upon it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he'll also update uh, whatever monument he has, the website for it, and a Facebook page to alert any aspiring visitors as to where it is that day so they can come check it out for themselves. And it's not just the viewers that find joy in his monuments. He's actually reeled in a community of like-minded artists who contribute to all the extra media that I mentioned. So each monument has its own series of mockumentary videos, and the final credits of these videos list a bunch of authors, librarians, and actors, just folks from all sorts of the arts, um, united by their enthusiasm for his creations. But, and I guess one other reason why I like him so much. So, um, as you mentioned too, these 
monuments aren't surely for entertainment purposes. Um, in the way that they sort of co-opt real historical events, they're also kind of designed to make us rethink our uh, sort of cultural memory um, and our understanding of the truth and what actually has happened and what we've experienced. And as he once explained it in an interview, one thing I do hope people get out of this is to do their due diligence, to do their own research and not to believe everything they hear. And if that isn't a fax machine approved mantra, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's interesting how much effort went into memorializing these kind of fake events. Um, I looked into a couple of statues um, weirdly, I just found two in Switzerland. One one definitively depicts a real event, and one is just a very, very old statue that clearly depicts a fake event. Um, and I wanted to just kind of juxtapose those two. Cool. So um, I'll do the I'll do the happy one first. Um, so there is okay. a three meter tall statue of Freddie Mercury Ooh. in Geneva. Yeah. Can anyone, do you know why? He uh, he stayed there yeah. in, in near Lake Geneva. Mantra. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's oh. where the statue is. And that's where they made his, or he made the final album with Queen, Made in Heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Geneva was so grateful that he was there and basically said, like, Geneva's awesome, that they built this one and a half man tall statue of Freddie Mercury um, in his, like, classic Freddie Mercury pose, like, mic in one hand, fist yeah. in the air. Like, <laughs> it is just a powerful, like, that's Freddie Mercury. Uh, and that's just a really cool statue. And it just, it feels to me like in a weird place. It's the largest Freddie Mercury statue in the world. There are there are others. But yeah, it's right on the shore of Lake Geneva. Same country now, but let's go back, say, 500 years to the creation of a fountain that is at the Kornhausplatz, <laughs> or the granary place in Bern, Switzerland. Kornhausplatz? Yes. <laughs> um... <laughs> And this statue is the Kindlefresserbrunnen. And that is the, um, I'm not exactly sure what that translates to. Basically, it is the fountain of the eater of little children. <laughs> oh, boy. So there is, there is a statue, and it's a depiction of an ogre just downing a baby. <laughs> it's is it like, like Krampus or something? It's just, I mean, very similar. Um, th- this is just some kind of, like, nameless ogre in a kind of ambiguous garb. Um, sitting down casually, eating a baby, like head first, with a sack over its left shoulder, with three more just like frantically terrified babies in it. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, it is, it's completely horrifying. The face is not cool to look at. I'm going to show the, the other host of the, uh, <laughs> the Wrestler Brunner. <laughs> oh my, oh my God. God. And it's just... Like, Jeez. like, why is it there? And like, what does it do? And this, the thing is, it's a historical statue. Um, it's it was um, it's the name that it was called in 1666. Although it was created in 1666. Yeah, one six six six. Yes, um, but it was built in 1545. <laughs> Noah's breaking out the red thread right now. <laughs> it all makes sense. <laughs> But that's just like for that's for whatever reason when that name came to be attached to it, it had been there for 120 years already, just <laughs> randomly hanging out in the Platzbrunnen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like it, it's been the kind of thing that uh, people have said, like, oh, we think that it it has these undertones we don't like. Some people think it has anti-Semitic tones. Some people think that it like shouldn't be around at certain religious holidays. Um, it definitely shouldn't be around. Yeah, just, just, <laughs> just any time at all. You solve all these problems at once. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, even the Wikipedia page notes that um, its likeness to Krampus, the beast-like creature right. in the folklore of the Alpine countries, um, it, making it a sort of Christmas-related, like... And it is wearing a red and green kind of clothing. Right. So there, there's a very good likelihood that at least the, the, the history of these legends share some common thread. Um, but other theories think that it could be um, the Greek god Cronus eating his children or the Roman Saturn eating the month. Oh, yeah. uh, eating the months. And so it's kind of really completely unknown that we don't have a really good record of why this was made or like who wanted it there or why why people are keeping it. Um, but a lot of Swiss people do kind of point to it as like, oh, you kids better stay in line, <laughs> which I think is just a terrifying and awful thing to say to children <laughs> because there's literally a child being decapitated by an ogre. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. So we've arrived at the quiz portion of our episode. Uh, so my quiz, admittedly, the questions have nothing to do with New York City. Oh. But all of the answers together fall under a secret category or theme Ooh. themselves and that category does have to do with New York City. It'll take some digging to get there, hopefully. All right, question one. What resulted in the installation of the House of Tudor as the rulers of the Kingdom of England? The War of the Roses? Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> Sweet. Nice! There you go. <laughs> okay. Next question. There we go. <laughs> So yes, that's why the Tudor Rose is the heraldic emblem of England. Question two. <laughs> what country is home to both the geographical center of Europe and a mass of corium named the Elephant's Foot? So thinking something like Germany-ish. I think maybe like, maybe a little east. I feel like east of Germany. Maybe, maybe yeah. like. Do we think that Scandinavia is balanced out by Turkey and the Balkans pretty well? No. But I also think that because of the Mercator projection, you think that Scandinavia is a lot bigger than it really is. That could be. See, what we need More. to do is the Peters projection. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about cartography all day long. The Peters projection maintains <laughs> the is, grid like fidelity. Is this your version of stalling? <laughs> Pretty much, stalling, yeah. Um, I think that there's a lot of Eastern Europe. So I think that pulls mm, it very a little more east. over than like... Okay, but in terms of like latitude... Is that the right one? Yeah. In, in yeah. terms of the horizontal one. Yeah. Let's go Poland. I can see Poland. Southern Poland. Corium elephant's foot. Elephant's foot is just kind of flat and round. <laughs> just like <Yes>. Poland. <laughs> Here goes the red thread again. <laughs> would so, it help? You did actually at one point say the right answer. I don't know if that would help if you said okay. a lot of countries. Um, so you said Czech Germany, Czech Republic, Poland, and Ukraine. So Czech Republic? Czech Republic. Ukraine. Wow. How is U- Ukraine so far east? Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, there's a claimant. Uh, the town of Transcarpathia has an obelisk that marks the spot. And the elephant's foot is an extremely radioactive mass of corium formed during the Chernobyl disaster. Oh. Yeah. Mm. And it looks like an elephant. All right. Question three. What beef cut, referred to simply as filet by the French, consists itself of three main cuts. The butt, the center cut, and the tail. I feel like it's that's the drumstick of the cow. Yeah. But I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> I'm really upset because I used to play on a softball team that was called Pun House. And it's like, 
it's the name of an obscure cut of meat in a crappy part of a cow. <laughs> and so our shirts were like, or maybe it was a pig. God damn it. I don't even know what it was, but it had all the parts labeled. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And it was just Great. like, we're the, we're the crappy part. <laughs> it was lovely to play with you. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no. Um, let's say... Sirloin. S- Sure. <laughs> Almost. I was looking for a tenderloin. Oh. Yep. Tenderloin. Just tenderloins. Okay. Got a San Francisco feel. Tender. <laughs> or the not tenderloins. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where are the roses? So wait, we we're looking for a secret theme. Mm-hmm. Where are the roses? Ukraine. Tenderloin. All right. So question four: What phrase has been used to describe a Campbell's product? Abbreviation heavy language and the social programs debuted under FDR's New Deal. Chunky. <laughs> <laughs> the social program under FDR's New Deal. Well, I bet it's is it alphabet soup? Yes. Ah. Exactly. So yeah, many New Deal acts for agencies uh, were known by their acronyms. So like the Works Progress Administration was the WPA and the Civilian Conservation Corps was the CCC. And people remarked that these Programs reminded them of Alphabet Soup because they were acronym heavy. Are these different neighborhoods in New York? Yes. In Manhattan specifically? Uh, yes, they are. Yeah. So you have, I guess, the Rose District. Is that a thing? Rose Hill. Rose Hill. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this, uh, what was the last one? What was you, what we just said? Well, there's Ukraine. Alphabet City. Alphabet City. Alphabet and City. then exactly. Ukraine Town. Is Little a, Ukraine. Little Ukraine. Okay. Yep. And then and the, the Tenderloin. Yep. Which New York, I guess, also has. <laughs> It does. It's near, I think it's near Flatbush. Well, I think what we just established is that I only knew Alphabet City. Yeah. Those I'm not sure how I got that at all. I just... <laughs> okay, so now we know. Their neighbor, are they specifically Manhattan neighborhoods? Mm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Question five. What is the most abundant element on Earth? Let's see. I think it's actually iron. Flat iron. Yeah. Yeah. Iron. Yes. Very cool. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Question six. What company has the distinction of being the only manufacturer of bone china in the United States? Bone china? Yeah. I've never heard of that. It's, it's it really nice stuff. Because uh, I feel like it's got to be... Why would a company make bone china unless they were already in like a home goods kind of thing? Or Well, what's upsetting about this is if it's just like bone china ink, you'd be like, oh, Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. The answer may be right under our noses. China is not in the name. Okay, that's good <laughs> to know. Just dispel that right now. Okay. Um, I mean, name neighborhoods, but I don't know the company. Or it'd be really annoying if it was just like Modern Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> or I, I would love it if there was a question and it's like, what do electric cars run on? Batteries. <laughs> Battery park, guys. Yeah, there was Battery some hanging fruit <laughs> with the secret theme. Bone, bone China sounds super familiar. I have no idea what company would make it. I'm going to say Corning. I have no idea what the neighborhood is. I have never heard of Bone China. Okay. I'm not from New York, so I'm just <laughs> going to say I don't know. Okay. So I was looking for Lennox, if that rings oh, a bell. Oh, okay. Uh, so they're actually also the first uh, North American Bone China to be used in the White House, and they've made tableware for six presidents. Oh. So yeah. it's, it's nice stuff, that Lennox. And that's, of course, for the, for the neighborhood. <laughs> Lennox Hill. Hill. Yep. Very nice. Exactly. Hometown crowd. Yep. Woo. All right. Question seven. What celebrity 
whose son recently opened a restaurant in Greenpoint, uh, the neighborhood in Brooklyn, has a reputation as an unexpected guest, crashing occasions ranging from parties to bachelor toasts to karaoke to pick up kickball games on Roosevelt Island. So keep an eye out, Noah, when you're uh, playing soccer next I time. I know who it is. It is Bill, Bill Murray. Murray. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> yeah, for Murray Hill, the neighborhood. Yes. He's also been known to pour shots and wash all the dishes at these parties because he's the coolest. <laughs> <laughs> best guest ever there's there's some story about he was in a diner and someone was eating french fries and he walked up and took fries off the plate and he ate it and he was like who are you going to tell no one's going to believe you <laughs> <laughs> alright question 8 if you do the math out by the end of the 12 days of Christmas the narrator has received exactly 22 units of what gifts birds is it birds? <laughs> Let's see. 22 units. So we're looking at like 654. Oh, no, it has to be like I see. Okay. Yep. So by the end, if you tally up all of the gifts that have been received by the end of the song. So like four calling birds and three French hens would be two units of birds. Or seven birds. Seven birds. Seven units. Oh, okay. An individual. Yes. Okay. So then it's got a. Two turtle doves. So that's nine birds. Okay, hold on. There's some geese in there. I think it's birds. Is it no, birds? But, no, no it's not birds. <laughs> um, Swans on. are swimming. There's <laughs> definitely a lot of birds. There are a lot of birds. <laughs> no, no one's arguing that. <laughs> I think we're straying from the question here. Hold on. Because we have to do the math to get to 21? 22. 22. Okay, in a direct way. So, like, if you had... Okay, like basically... There are seven swans of swimming. <laughs> six geese a lamb. Yes. Four, what, three French hens, two turtle doves. Yep. Four, four so, calling... Yeah. Four to, but, to clarify, so when you seven, sing the song, 11. on the first day of Christmas, they truly gave to me a partridge and a pear tree. One partridge. Second iteration, they have two turtle doves and then two partridges because they gained another so partridge in the second day So you count every single time, you just count one way through. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because each day they gain the new present and then another one of all the previous. So they've received. Is that right? They've received hundreds of birds, Noah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm saying. You're really underestimating. (laughs) Basically, if you start at like three, oh no, if you start there are twelve days, and if you get two each starting on the second day, that's eleven days. So turtle doves. And. Turtle bay. (laughs) (laughs) So. So yes, that was that's half the answer, and that's the neighborhood that I had in mind. But there is one other gift that you'll have twenty-two of by the end of the song. Twelve drummers drumming, eleven pipers piping. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And there are <laughs> and hundreds of birds. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, great job, guys. <sighs> Um, so that concludes our episode about New York City, and I know I've dropped a couple of jabs and barbs about it throughout, uh, but I guess wrap things up and also describe the city that is our home in a somewhat softer light, I'll turn to the words of John Steinbeck. New York is an ugly city, a dirty city. Its climate is a scandal. Its politics are used to frighten children. Its traffic is madness. Its competition is murderous. But there is one thing about it. Once you've lived in New York and it has become your home, No place else is good enough.
Um, if you live in New York, you're going to be familiar with the Link NYC towers, which basically are these big screens that are like just basically broadcast New York propaganda at you. It's like <laughs> like every single yeah. author ever has some quote about how New York's awesome. Um, and the, like, for example, there's a Thomas Wolfe quote that goes, New York blazes like a magnificent jewel in its fit setting of sea and earth and stars. And I'm like, okay, That's whatever. You know, it's like, <laughs> there's always something like that. But I did see one the other day that made me incredibly proud to live here. Ooh. And it goes, on this day, Alan Alda was born in New York City. And I was just like, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> you go, Alan Alda! Alan Alda, we got yeah! <laughs> and on that note, please check out our social media accounts. <laughs> Um, if you'd like, as we mentioned, we'll post some content from this episode. Um, and there's some content from previous episodes there as well. Um, if you mosey on over to our Instagram at Fax Machine Pod or our Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. As we mentioned earlier in the show, we do have a live version of this goodness coming up in a few months. Ooh. We'll release more information about that as it gets closer. We'd also like to thank our friend, maestro Anthony Antonelli, the composer of the Fax Machine theme song. And I think that's all we have for now. So, signing off. See you guys. Bye. I did come across a news article describing it. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It was that. (laughs) It's on mute now. Go ahead.